Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Greg Rob. Now it's difficult sometimes because I would imagine people call you Rob Greg. Yeah, quite often. <laughs> <laughs> now now Greg is a former police officer and now he lives in the Philippines and teaches out there. Welcome this morning, this afternoon as it is for you. Thank you so much for taking part in this. Thank you. It's a pleasure. But where did it all begin for you? What what was life all about and how did you get to where you are now? Um, that's quite a long story. I suppose um, I would go back to about 90, the early 80s. I was a school teacher in Britain uh, working in secondary and I, I did that job for about six years. And I remember a point when I started work in London, um, I took a promotion, went to London um, I very quickly had enough of it. Um, there were all sorts of problems with discipline, with the management of schools and this sort of thing. And I started casting around looking for another career and obviously one that, that paid slightly better. Um, and I, I graduated to the police, which was something I'd, I'd thought about in the past, but never done anything with it. So I became a sort of mature entrant and I joined the Met in 1988. And how old were you then? I was 30, and, and at that time, I was one of the older recruits in the training school. I do remember that. Um, now, of course, you get all sorts. Um, but at the time, I felt a little bit old. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed it very much indeed. But I think that that was the maximum age at that time. They they, they had a maximum age limit, and I think that 30 was probably, unless you'd been in the military. But I think in then, I joined in 87, and I'm pretty sure that 30 was the was the max age. Yeah, that could be. I've just forgotten. It's so long ago, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is actually. It's a lifetime ago when we think yeah. about it. But um, so, where were you born? Where did you Where did you grow up? I was born in Plymouth, um, in in England. My I come from a, a service family. My dad was in the navy. My grandfather's in the army. Um, I tried to get into the army, um, actually, Paul, and I and I was told I wasn't mature enough and to come back later. But <laughs> I think after about a year. A chap, very nice man, rang me and asked if I was more mature, and I said, "Well, not really." Um, <laughs> but I was still at college. And, and you you taught in Ipswich, which is very close to where I I live. Yeah. What was it like going from a um, a rural school, if you like, a, a county school, to an inner London school? Because I think yeah. you went to William Morris from from there. Yeah. That's right, Paul, a huge difference. I worked in three um, comprehensives in, in England. Two, two were in the counties. The first one was in Guildford, and it's a really top-performing school. Anybody who spent money on a school there would be wasting it, really, because the local ones are so good. Um, I took a promotion, two promotions, one to Ipswich and another one to um, into London. Um, so, but, so Guildford and Ipswich, they're quite different 
uh, towns. Yes. Um, but Suffolk is a very special place. I, I think it's a well-kept secret yeah, in England, is. really, because it's gorgeous. And um, I would try, probably, as I went through the different schools, um, I probably found less engagement with parents, for example, in somewhere like Guildford. You know, the parents are all on board. Um, the kids are, are fully motivated. It's really very easy work. And that's part of the problem is you can't get promoted in that environment because right. nobody wants to leave. No, absolutely, absolutely. And and the William Morris, because William Morris was the founder of the arts and crafts movement in London, yeah. in, in, in the UK. And... Um, is there's a there's a house there so and I know where William Morris School is, but what was that like going from Ipswich into the almost the inner cities? Yeah, I mean it was a huge surprise. <clears throat> That's the first time I lived in in London, and um, I suppose it, it was very challenging. I had a sort of big range of um, kids from different backgrounds. I would say Walthamstow is about a third Asian, a third uh, black people, and about a third local you know, working class, white population. And uh, we got on very well together. Um, but it had the biggest market in in Europe, this longest street market. And a lot of the kids were going to work there. So they would turn to school and um, to work with mum and dad in the market. Oh, wow. It really was a waste of time chasing them. <laughs> they couldn't wait to leave school. It was a, it was 11 to 16 school, Paul. And um, most of the kids there were quite keen to leave at the earliest opportunity. I mean, it's it's interesting how things have changed, but but that part of London hasn't changed that dramatic. I don't know if the market's still there, but Black Horse Road, if you remember it, the yeah. tube, tube station opposite there, where the car park was, that's all all houses or all all flats now, so you can't park there anymore. But but what has noticeably changed is the increasing violence in that particular area, yeah. Kn knife crime, um, murders, etc., which is quite. Was that something that you experienced whilst you were a school teacher? Um, no, I didn't. Um, very, very little. Uh, although I, I did feel that probably, I remember being punched and shoved a bit, but nothing, nothing beyond that. So I can't really say it was ever a big deal. No. Um, certainly, I never heard of any knife incidents um, in a school. It was, it was all kind of in London vandalism, people's fighting each other, but. No, nothing like we, we read in the newspapers today. No. And, of course, you're talking about the time of Grange Hill and programmes like that, and it probably mimicked some of the some of the television narrative. Oh, yeah. This was a big joke with us, that they would, you, something would be shown on Grange Hill, and the next day they would be sporting the big tie or the white socks <laughs> it used to be for these guys. So it, it, it was something we did did look at and have a good laugh over so you, so you had enough of teaching what what made the change why did you what did you have enough of which meant you wanted to join the police service yeah well like everyone else i i gave this sort of standard answer i want to kind of help people and and be part of the community i have to be honest with you paul it is partly financial because they at that time the police paid massively more than i was receiving as a teacher with several years experience and my, my salary went up by two or three hundred quid wow. when I joined the training school um, so that was part of it but also the the feeling that I wouldn't have to take work home with me um, you know I was doing hours of marking papers and things like this every every night uh, so that was a factor uh, and while the holidays were shorter at least you could choose when to take them at some time yeah. you know th these were some of the things going through my mind and um, something adventurous of course definitely that's a big part of it 
So you, you went to Hendon, 1988, when it was still a big uh, police training school. What was that like as a as a, a more mature student? What was that like going in there with a you know a, a load of younger people? And you're starting your training again. You've already done your your teacher training. Yeah. It, well, we, it was like a bit like teacher training. You're back on probation again. Um, but I found it very easy, Paul. You know, the physically, the discipline, it was all very easy. I, I attended a Jesuit boarding school when I was young. And um, I must admit, I thought it was pretty soft compared to what, what I'd, I'd been through there. Oh, yeah. Um, but absolutely no problem with being a bit older. There were, there were some others. And... Um, you know, that, that sort of five months I spent at Hendon was absolutely terrific. I'll never forget it. Um, and the standard of the teaching, I thought, was incredibly high. Uh, I was in awe of it. Really? As a teacher, just how good it was. Wow. I, I, I suppose I didn't appreciate it because I looked at it from a different point of view. I was never a scholar, so that wasn't, that wasn't something that I was ever good at. At school, wasn't... Yeah. I, and I like knowledge, and I like I like to learn, but I didn't particularly like school. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, looking back on it, I mean, there was there was a lot of continuing sort of training. Education is sort of compulsory in the police. It's much the same as the forces. So there is there is always an element of training going on. Um, and uh, I always thought it was good. You know, throughout my career was was. Excellent. Where, and where did you get posted? You, you've come out of the um, out of training school. Where did you get posted to? Yeah, I remember they they asked us. You can put a list of preferences if you want, and and people filled in places like Chelsea and Fulham. Uh, so any questions? I said, well, will you get your preferences? Most unlikely. <laughs> um, so I ended up in Southall in West London. Oh, okay. Which was, a, was a wonderful posting, really, because it was extremely busy uh, police station, and I remember it really rocking and rolling from the from the word go. Um, and, uh, yeah, so in a very short space of time, I felt I, w- I was getting my f- finding my feet there. Was that before the riot? Because they had riots in Southall, didn't they? And I, um, I don't know what year that was now off the top of my head. But... Yeah, the 78 or 9, <clears throat> I think, Paul, there were oh, riots okay, yeah, in Southall. Well and uh, there was a monument to a chap called Blair Peach yes. which somebody put in the pavement. Um I didn't experience any sort of racial tensions at all um, when I went there sort of 10 years later. Absolutely none. Did you think the inclusivity, because, I mean, the police are um, castigated for the way that they include people, but you've gone to a, a, a social melting pot in Southall. I mean, it's a really, really diverse part of London. How did you find the interaction between the police and the public? I, I felt it was very positive, Paul, in general. Um, this is, Southall is probably 90, 90% Sikh Asian. Um, and I don't think they're a difficult community to get on with anyway, no. because they're into making money, they have a good wedding, they enjoy a drink. Um, they're very easygoing. And they also run everything in India, even though they're a minority. So yeah. they're, they're quite big people physically. Um, and they're not the sort of people to, to have a chip on their shoulder about anything. No. I found them real pleasure to get on with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not surprised they run India, really. I, I, I love the Sikh community. I mean, we we spent many years playing hockey, and um, it was just, you know, if you came up against the Sikh team, it was brilliant. The sociability and everything, very respectful, 
uh, very hard people though. I mean, they they wouldn't um, as as a culture. They're, they're they're warriors and absolutely brilliant. But how how did you find the um, inclusivity within the police station? The reactions with the police officers and and the the community. What was that like? I think it. it, it I mean, in terms, I don't. Some of the language used, I felt, was it was quite patronising towards the Asians. Yeah. You know, you would hear sort of quite a lot of banter in the station about tats and things like this, you meaning the locals. Um, but but I think it, the policing there was always pretty professional. Of course, there were a lot more of us in those days. A shift would, would field sort of 15 people, you know, three times a day. And I was a home beat for quite a while, so I got to know people that way. Oh, wow. Um, it, for about 18 months, I was a home beat in Southall, a community policeman, for those who are listening, and uh, with my own little patch. And certainly to me, that was the best job I had in the police, without any exceptions. It was a fantastic job. And one of the reasons for going to another division or to, to specialist operations was they just abolished it almost overnight. Uh, they went over to sectors. First of all, it was going to be sectors or something like that. But you could see it was all over. Um and it, it was, this was about 1991, Paul, and you could see that was kind of the end of it. Or what the tail a shame. What I thought it was going to be. And that's, that's probably the start of our, our major problems around um, the understanding and the, the, you know, the acceptance of the police and the respect towards the police. And it's interesting that you say about the banter, because I believe in banter. I think people, I, I think people should have the ability to um, have a laugh and a joke as long as it doesn't cloud their judgment when they're working within the communities that they're working, because you can say one thing as a joke and not actually mean it because that's what it is. It is a joke. And I think that sometimes that gets blown out of context. When you, when you uh, were a home beat officer, what were the community like towards you? How was the trust and how was the, you know, the buy-in from them? I felt it was really pretty good. I mean, it, I, I, there were about, I suppose, maybe 15 or so home beats. Southall was quite a big division. There was Greenford, which was at the north, North Alt, um, Southall, and Norwood Green, which was a very sort of quite well-off area. Um, the interaction with the community would depend where you were, I think, Paul, but certainly in Southall Broadway, around that area, generally very positive. I didn't speak the language, um, but I didn't really need to. And uh, people did come to me with problems, and I felt I was... Actually, it's the only time I felt I was actually achieving anything because I would get jobs from things that I picked up and, you know, passed on to the crime desk and things like this. So, yeah, I, I think it would, I, I did actually make a difference. I would drive traffic out and things like this, which they liked, you know, people parking on the pavement. Brilliant. I remember doing about two or 300 tickets once um, in one shift. <laughs> it went down quite well. But you couldn't do anything like that. Now. No, but that's um, proper community policing. It is. I don't think it's difficult, Paul. I don't think policing is a difficult job, but you do need plenty of money um, and you need people visible. Yeah, Otherwise, do. I don't think it's going to work. You can't police Just from your desk. Opinion. No, absolutely. I absolutely agree. You'll find no arguments from me. People, I used to walk into my CID office and I'd say to all my guys and girls, go and get your prisoners. Don't rely on uniform to go and do it. Go and get your own prisoners. And guess what? Very few people come and give themselves up to the CID office. Go out and be visible. And um, I, I just think that 
I'm a dinosaur, though, mate. I'm sorry to say, but that's that's how it is. Yeah, I mean, you you know as well as I do, Paul, as well. People are quite receptive if they feel it's safe to be, um, even in the worst areas, um, whether it's here in the Philippines or or in London. You know, ninety five percent of the people there are definitely okay. Oh, and absolutely. Trying to make the best of the difficult situation sometimes. So if you can be visible and you sort of part of their community it does make a difference absolutely I think. absolutely so you finish your home beat duties and you you vote to go somewhere else you've 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 put a transfer in where did you go to well i went to, i i applied to join the special branch pool because i'd done a degree in politics and um and i got in and um we had to sit an exam i remember that and um, and then there was an interview for which i was late and what sticks in my mind is being asked by superintendent um you are late for your interview what is your explanation i said i was being stuck on for neglect of duty um and so the obviously thought that was the right answer and um and I, I spent virtually my entire police career paul in the special branch until until it came to an end in 2006 and became the I think the Counter-Terrorism Command at that point. SO15, Counter-Terrorism Command, or SO13, was it then? I can't remember. SO yeah, S it joined with SO12, was the old special branch in London. Yes. It joined with um, the Counter-Terrorism Branch. We were downstairs in the same building and um, became SO15. There was a long story of uh, political infighting behind those changes, Paul. I'm sure you're aware. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. When you went on special branch, the IRA were in full flight. I mean, that was that would yeah. have been the the predominant work that you would have undertaken stuff around the um, around the Irish terrorist groups. But as you come to the end of your service on special branch, it would have moved into the it would have moved into the Islamic terrorist. Yeah, how, exactly. How was the crossover, and, and, and what were the, the the main issues from the start to the finish? Um. <clears throat> Certainly, from about 1991 to, I, I'm trying to remember now, the end of 1996, that was the time of um, the problems of Ireland. Of course, you know, Special Branch did a number of other things. Um, they We monitored the extreme right wing, yes. the extreme left. We spent a huge amount of time with the Jewish community, you know, making sure they were okay and yep. this kind of stuff. Um, and we also did um, electoral crime, electoral frauds, anything like that. We would do so those were little sidelines that were always going on but the bulk of the work was certainly uh, to do with with ireland um and to be honest with you i think the the role of special branch in the irish problem by then was really as a sort of aid to so13 to the counter-terrorism branch because it had been decided some years previously there wasn't much intelligence to be gained on the mainland which i thought was crazy but that was the kind of received wisdom um, that you had to be given this information by others before anything would be done. Uh, but that took up the bulk of the time, certainly till about the end of the 90s. And there was a gap, I remember, where not much was happening. And then, you know, 9-11 and all the rest of it. Yeah, because we we, we were still having um, IED events in, in the UK, explosives going off in the UK. Right up to the mid to late nineties, didn't we? From from the Irish terrorism side, yeah. I mean Canary yeah. Wharf yeah. and what have you. Which I think that was ninety six Canary Wharf, and that was so devastating to the capital. But it, it it's almost like it never happened. Yeah, 
And another big, there were several surprises around that time. And one of them was that the that people, including English people, were getting involved in it. Um, there was a chap called Jan Taylor, who'd been an ex-soldier in the British Army, and he was become an IRA bomber. Um, and then there was a young man who was who was shot, I remember. His name was Dermot O'Neill. These were Londoners, uh, people who'd never spent any time in Northern Ireland, but it's kind of drifted into this through their associations with pressure groups or whatever else, and being used as useful tools by the the people who never get their hands dirty, you know. Often away. And, and dare I say it, much of the IRA or the you know Northern Ireland problem is around organised crime. It's now it's no longer a religious thing. It's organised crime groups that are carrying out the sectarianism that, that's taking place. And Glasgow's even worse. I mean that, that it's worse than Belfast at the moment. But um, we, but there seems to be a press embargo around all the things that happen out there. Yeah, I think I think that um, one of the things I we kept coming across was. Terrorists, uh, they were part-timers. Crime was their hunt, was their full-time job, yeah. and they would do a bit of terrorism on the side. That was certainly true with the Irish ones. Yeah, absolutely. And, and where did you work from? The yard, or were you in, in an external station? was based at, at Scotland Yard for most of the time, and um, we used to work out of various other offices. One of them was in Tintagel House, yes, um, which were where the surveillance people lived, and... Um, so I, I did some time in all of the the different areas of of special branch work, and um, but mostly it was based at Scotland Yard. Yeah. Did you have a specialism? I mean, in some some um, areas, they'll say right. You, you know, you can you can specifically look at the right wing groups, Combat Eighteen, and the like, and someone else will look at Pyra um, and so on and so forth. Was there anything? Was did you have a specialist subject? Yeah, I mean, what what happened at the beginning was everybody was was posted to Heathrow Airport. So the the new new entrants to Special Branch would cut their teeth at the airport, right? Um, and then they would, you know, be be drafted into various squads. I was really very lucky because I worked in almost all of them, um, including the right wing. And so yeah, we got to know all about Combat 18, and um, I used to go down to Brick Lane um, because even in that job you could get out. And one of the nice things about working there was you were trusted. Um, to work on your own. And so a good deal of time was spent out of the office um, talking to people, cultivating people. I did enjoy that side of it very much. Yeah, and the, and the tactic, and I get it, has, has moved. But, you know, if you could imagine that if people got out of the office and did that cultivation and they combined it with the tactics that they've now got around the internet and all the other devices they've got available, I mean, it would be a force to be reckoned with. There, there would be no, there would be no issues. That said, we have we have reduced the amount of of on land um, UK based um, attacks. And the other thing I will say is, and it goes goes without saying that we don't get to hear about ninety eight percent of the operations that are taking place in the UK at the moment. Uh, they get dealt with. People even go to court, and we don't know it now. Which is, which is pretty cool. So how long did you serve on Special Branch? Um, I served on Special Branch, yeah, really, until I retired, Paul. I, 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 I met and married a Filipino lady um, who's actually, you can probably hear her moving around in the background. Um, and having spent some time here, I liked the lifestyle very much. And, and it's really around about 2009, 2010, 
I, I thought I'd revisit my old work and I retrained as a, as a foreign language teacher. I was wow. able to retire on 25 years service, Paul, because I'd already done some other work. Yes. And I thought, well, do I really want to spend another five years in, in the kind of environment that it had become? Uh, and the answer was no. And so I left. Fantastic. And now you're in the Philippines, it's 30 degrees, and you are a freelance EFL teacher. English first language? Yeah, that's right. English for, as foreign language, as foreign language. Uh, or second language. I don't do any. I don't have any business here, Paul, because this is with Filipino people because they are an English-speaking nation. Yes. Um, so I'm in the wrong place for that. But there we have a number of Koreans and a lot of Chinese people that I can do some work. And in fact, I worked for the Chinese for the last seven years until the just recently the pandemic um, put a stop to it. I carried on working online for a while, and and now I'm too old to go back to China, Paul. No. Um, which is a shame because I would certainly have continued there. It was uh, good money and um, I just ignored the politics. I'm not too proud to take, you know, Mao Zedong's money, really, if I, no. if I need it. I, I love China. I, I got taken there by a client five years ago now. And I went to Chong, Chongqing, Chongqing and Chengdu and I absolutely loved it. Very, very, I mean, it, it, it is a country of haves and have-nots. And the state are always watching you. If you get on the train, you, you have to scan in your passport or your ID documents. They know exactly where you're getting on and where you're getting off. And they are considered. But I thought it was a great country. Very, very vibrant. It is. And from a policing point of view, Paul, you, you probably noticed a couple of things. That most police in China are unarmed. And that was a big surprise to me that they, they're not carrying guns, but for the most part. And yet there's very little trouble in China, as you probably noticed. Um, I think it's the culture, really, and the cameras and surveillance that's going on. Yeah. Uh, and the knowledge, too, that domestic security is very well resourced in China. They have unlimited funds to build prisons or, or have enough police or anything like that. And it really does make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, for the, the upper end of the, the criminal market, they still have the death penalty as well, which um, they do. is yeah. quite a significant they deterrent do, out there. Yeah, so, in the Philipp what what do you do in the Philippines now? Then, what's your? Do you still teach? Yeah, I, I've I've just um I've just, I'm doing a little bit of teaching. I'm also doing some writing. I'm trying to write a, a novel, um, so that's taking up a little bit of my time. Um, I'm looking around for so I'm I should put on my LinkedIn profile that I'm available to work because indeed I am. Um, so. Right this minute, I'm not in formal employment. I'm, I've been doing some private work, and that's it. Right. Um, so, so what? I mean, you're looking for private teaching work or or similar? Yeah, I mean, there's ageism in this job as well, Paul. If you're a teacher, um, it depends on the country. Um, quite a lot of them do have official cut-off ages. China's one of them. Really? If you're over sixty, it's very difficult to get in. Um, but if you're fifty-nine, it's no problem. And so long as you're in there, you can continue on indefinitely. No. But they have all kinds of other rules. Because of the pandemic, I got stuff and I can't go back now um, other than a visitor. And I've been back to visit and to collect my things and, and the money they owed me and that kind of thing. Oh, what a shame. Uh, but that was all. What a shame. And do you get back yeah. to the UK? Yeah, quite often. Um, you know, I, we, we, do, we don't have a home in the UK anymore. We, we moved here and this is now my, our permanent home. But, uh, you know... Thankfully, my dad is still with us. He's in his 90s. Oh, brilliant. So I get back to Britain at least twice a year and uh, can go there really any time. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah. 
Fantastic. And what's your book based on? What What are you looking at writing? Well, they it's it's loosely it's it's like a I'm trying to do a history novel, Paul, about a character called Nicholas Sloney, or based on somebody called Nicholas Sloney. He was an adventurer from from Plymouth. Uh, also from a Navy background in the 19th century, who came to the Philippines and single-handedly set up the sugar industry here, wow. um, which is an enormous um, part of the economy. And so he he brought it into the modern age with machinery and this kind of thing. There are statues to him. He was quite an interesting guy, I think. Um, so he's trying to find out as much as I can about his life. Oh, brilliant. Um, and what the old Philippines was like. It was then a Spanish-run country. Um, and... Even the name is named after King Philip of Spain. Right. You know, they have a, quite a strong streak of Spanish here, which makes it totally unique in Asia. It's a Christian country. They speak English, and it's unlike any other. And and there seems to be a big link, but maybe it's my perception, but big link between the Philippines and the USA. Is that right? I mean, the... yeah, there is because in 1898 they had a war, Spain and the US. Uh, and basically, America wanted colonies. Europe had was running Africa. They had all these colonies. They didn't have any, um, and they felt left out. So I think the American newspapers concocted a good reason to go to war, as they do, w- with a weak country, which was Spain. And, and virtually within seven days, they got the Philippines and Cuba in the same week. Um, so they became American possessions, Paul, until really the 19th, end of World War Two. Really? Well, I, yeah. I never knew that. I, I mean, it's quite a distance between the USA and the Philippines, geographically. There yeah, there really is. And um, at right now, we're living in a place called Clark in the Philippines. And Clark was the former US Air Force base, right? Uh, which used to service um, Vietnam and other sorts of things. They probably wish they'd kept it now, Paul, because yeah. now they're trying to get back in. Um, but they're sort of having to pay a lot of money to the locals this time. Yeah, they can't just just ride in roughshod. Yeah. How yeah. did you find the culture when you've gone from from London, living in London, working in London, to living in the Philippines? How was that crossover? Uh, it, was, it was not difficult, Paul. I didn't find it, it hard because I've had a few holidays here, um, my wife and I, and um, the pace of life is really much slower here. It's partly to do with the weather. So th- there is, a, there is a, an adjustment needed Definitely, if you're in a hurry to get something done or you're an impatient sort of person, it's probably not for you. Um, but if you need a rest and a bit of relaxation, it's it's very nice. They're wonderful people and um, extremely welcoming with, with this very sort of caring nature. And I'm not surprised there are so many nurses in Britain from the Philippines. Oh, it's, yeah. it's part of the reason. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my uncle's other half, he's... Um... He's from the Philippines, and and like you say, very very caring background, and and they get involved in the in the care community, and they do a fantastic job here, and again a very very respectful society. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? That it's it's much it's much more disciplined in some ways. The impression you get from reading about it from Britain is quite a, a kind of chaotic country, full of corrupt politicians and and earthquakes. But the reality is it's very disciplined. And during the pandemic, for example, you know, absolutely no problem with getting people to stay in the house, to wear masks. Everybody gets it. And yeah. I asked my wife, why was this? And he said, well, they don't want to get sick because they're going to have a big hospital bill and they have to pay. Um, and that's part of the reason. But they're very obedient and um, I would say respectful people. 
Yeah. But of course, it's remembered for Imelda Marcos. Is, is that was that she was the shoe lady, wasn't she? She was Philip. Was she from the Philippines? Yeah, she is. And do you know she's still alive, Paul? She's in her nineties. She's the mother of the of the present present president at the moment. Um, I think she's lost the plot a bit because she doesn't come out in public very often. Um, but yeah, politics in the Philippines is a family business, Paul. I never knew that she was still around. Well, that's, that's... She's still around, and um, you know when she, when she finally leaves us, I'm sure there'll be a lot of newspaper articles about her. Oh yeah, the her shoes were were famous, weren't they, in the day? Yeah. There's and, a museum here, Paul, with her shoes in it. Is it? <laughs> it's worth seeing it's, it's if you have time. <laughs> and uh, our favourite subjects in the UK, and we, we touched on it earlier, the weather, because they have extreme bouts of weather in the Philippines. Yeah. Have you yeah. experienced any of that with the cyclones? I, I think it's it, the, the, main, the main problem here is, is being flooding, um, which we've... we've We've escaped. I mean, it's rather like Britain. If, if you pick where you live yeah. with a bit of care, you'd probably be okay. Um, so the, everything is adapted to the weather, Paul. That's true. A lot of houses have the electric cables in the roof because it's well known that, you know, water may rise. So the build, the building are more, maybe some more disposable because it could well be blown away um, and it's easy to put up another one. Fantastic. And your your father's in Plymouth, is he? No, my dad, actually, they all moved to Scotland, Paul. Oh. Uh, my mum was from Glasgow. Um, my dad now lives in Edinburgh, but um, I was born in Plymouth, but we never lived there after the first few months of my life. We lived in Hong Kong, in Malta and some other places. And um, like a lot of service children, I went back to school in Britain, my sister and me. Wow. It's it's funny because um, I'm out with some friends at the weekend. His, he he lived in Hong Kong. His dad was with the Black Watch, and I think my my dad was in the army. We 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 lived in Germany. That's as exotic as it got. But I think that lifestyle sets you up for life. It makes it makes you an adventurer because you're you're used to doing certain things. You're you're not frightened of meeting people. You're not frightened of yeah. going and experiencing yeah. different cultures. Yeah, and I wasn't frightened either of, you know, when, when I left the police, I, before, just shortly before I left, I started to make inquiries about doing other work, other jobs, and I, without trading on my old one um, as a teacher or as a police officer. So I, I went back to school for a month and I, I did a, a course on how to teach foreigners, which is something I didn't know how to do. And, um, you know, it, I think it pays not to be too cool for school, really, Paul, to be able to go back and be willing to learn a new skill, even if you're getting on a bit. But I think you can do that. How does that alter? You know, teaching teaching secondary school kids to teaching foreign students, is there a marked difference? Not really. It's completely different kind of work. Um, they're, they're, mostly they want to be there, for one thing. And um, But I, I would say there's, there's almost no difference. There's no real connection between them. Um, it depends what you're doing with whether they have to pass an exam or something, and and where you are. Because if you're if you're working in China, it's a teacher's dream. It really is because they're so well behaved, um, and teachers in China have the reputation that doctors do in Britain. They're they're much sort of higher right. level of perception of the work they do, um, and the reverse is true of the doctors. Wow. <laughs> until you get sick, of course, and of then course. they, you know, want a lot of your money. <laughs> And do you speak um, Chinese? Have you, have you? 
very little, Paul. I, I, I've, I'm a beginner. Uh, I, I learned a few. I could get by with asking directions and, and make some greetings, but the answer is no. And to be a foreign language teacher, to teach English to foreigners, the medium is always in English. So there's absolutely no mileage whatever in needing to know another language. Um, that That's never the case. You don't need to speak Chinese to go and work there or to work in any other country. You're there to teach English. They're there to learn it. You're not there to learn their language. No, but that, that's how it works. But that just seems a bit counterintuitive because you think that there'll be points where you've got to try and or you've got to explain to somebody what you're trying to say. I mean, that's a silly way of explaining it, but that level of communication so that you can bring them in and get them yeah. to communicate with you. Yeah, I never found it a problem. I suppose it depends where you are. I mean, English is compulsory in many countries like China throughout primary school and into secondary. And um, so they, so very few people have no English at all. Right. Um, there are some. And, and it, what do you do with them? Well, hi. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much Nihau, how we yeah. begin. Um, but generally, they have a base, and that's the challenge: is to kind of build on that and to and to work it out by doing without resorting to the other language. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, the, the fantastic film Good Morning Vietnam, where Robin Williams walks into the into the Vietnamese school and and tries to teach these lovely people how to speak some English. And I suppose that's my perception of what you know teaching would be like in those circumstances. Yeah. So, I would recommend it, Paul. You don't need a background in teaching to do this kind of work. If if people are sort of, you know, people are maybe retiring from the police and they have a bit, a bit of time and you know on their side, then it's something I would recommend because um, I think doing other work makes you a better teacher anyway, um, or having done other jobs, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. You've got you've got those life skills and experiences. So what next? What's happening next for you, sir? Well, I'm open to. What's, I'm open to offers, open shall to we work, say. Yeah. Um, I'm not available, but I'm open to offers. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm looking looking around, really, and I'm quite happy here. Um, living in a country like this, I find, you know, my British pension money goes a lot further than it would do in Britain. Um, for some things, for, for my, electricity here is very expensive. Um, but apart from that, um, it's you can sustain a lifestyle that's probably better than you would expect in, in some other places. But as, a, but as a, okay, so as a British police pensioner, how easy is it to make that transition and how accepting are the Filipinos to having, if I said, right, I want to up sticks and come and live in the Philippines, is it that easy? Um, well, first of all, there are not that many people do it um, and it's not that easy. You, 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 it's almost impossible to become a Philippine citizen. You, they need a special act of Congress for that, wow. um, which I'm sure is it's most unusual. So most people settle for some kind of permanent residence, which is like a green card, and that means they can work. Um, and I, you know, I had to show that I had good character and sit in an interview and be considered for this. Uh, my wife was there. I had absolutely no problems. But um, I do remember that. They're quite fussy, and they want to know who's coming in and um, and they joked a bit, saying, "Well, most people are going out. We don't meet many people like you." Um, so they, I think that because they're an island nation, um, much further from the mainland than Britain, the immigration system here is extremely well run, and um, I don't think you would stand a chance really of of getting past it if they didn't want you. Well, that's that's good to know, and I can't remember in all my times in the in the police service. 
where I've dealt with a Filipino suspect. I can't. I I, I dealt with every other culture, but I don't. Yeah, thinking back, we had we had a couple. I encountered a couple in London, and they. I think one there was one young man. He was he was a sort of second generation, and I suspect there was a kind of a little bit of culture clash between what he was getting at school and what he was probably getting at home, because Philippine people are extremely conservative in many ways. Right. Um, this is quite an old-fashioned society yeah. um, where things don't change so much, perhaps, as in, in Britain. What part does the church play out there? Because they're, are they, they're a Catholic, predominantly Catholic culture? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's mostly a Catholic country. You have about sort of 14 or 15% Muslims, um, and there's some tension, but generally I wouldn't People are quite religious, um, but it's not slavish. I no. think it's just something that's very much part of the of the culture. And they and they still the churches still flourish out there. And oh yeah, the church is the church is extremely powerful in the Philippines, Paul. It's it's like nowhere else. The Philippines is the only country left that doesn't have divorce. Can you believe that? It doesn't have a divorce law. It's the only one. Um, abortion is is completely illegal and technically contraception as well. Although in reality, that yeah. definitely does happen. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty conservative. The, the church has real money and power here. What what they say kind of is is considered. Wow, I I, I had no idea. I had no idea. Well, sir, I would just like to thank you so much for your time today. I've really, I've really enjoyed our, our chat. I hope you've enjoyed the experience of, of doing I this I have podcast. very much, Paul. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Um, I hope that um, if anyone's bothered to listen to me, that they always have a, a warm welcome in, 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 the, in the beautiful Philippines. Um, well, I will keep in touch, though. And I will tell you that there are 90 countries where this podcast is received. So, terrific. Which, you know, I'm, I'm quite proud of. You start with one, and it's, I'm up to 90 countries right across the globe. So, so somebody wow. in the Philippines will probably be listening to this at some point. And yeah. this is re- preserved forever and ever, amen, which is exactly why I do what I do. But before yeah. I conclude this interview, and this will take you back to your police days, I'm going to ask you if you've got anything you'd like to add, alter or correct in relation to today's podcast. Uh, no, not at all, Paul. It's, um, it's a pleasure to chat. Uh, thank you for so much for asking me. No problems at all. Have a great evening and um, let's catch up soon. Yeah, you too, Paul. Look forward to that. Wrap up all